I think one of the big evolutions in my work is a long time ago when I was working more minimally, I would know everything what I was going to use and probably what all the colors were going to be. And now I feel like I'm working a bit more like a painter. I don't like all the decisions to be made before I sit down. I like the discovery along the way. And the best part for me is Mm -hmm. there's a lot of excitement in that way because you can surprise yourself. You can start out with an idea, but it can become more than the sum of the parts. It can take on a whole new way by sometimes, for example, I'll just, I have a lot of um, files of images um, organized by subject matter. And so sometimes I'll just happen to be looking at these image files and I'll find the most perfect thing that goes with what I'm working on. And I didn't even think about it or know or realize. And that's what I love about the discovery where you haven't made all your decisions when you sit down to start and you, you leave yourself more open for things to come in. Welcome to Insights of an Echo Artist. My name is Joanna Lerko. I'm an echo artist and arts writer. In every episode, I bring worldwide artists that embody the fight to create a more sustainable world. Hello everyone and welcome back. Thank you for joining us today as we explore the exciting world of contemporary art and the artists who are pushing the boundaries of traditional art forms. And today we have the perfect example of that. We are interviewing Anne Fine Fear, a Baltimore-based artist who blends digital technology with traditional collage techniques to create thought-provoking pieces that challenge our perception of the world around us. And her work has often recurring motifs, such technology, natural disasters and location, but this her specific approach and aesthetic that unifies a diverse subject matter, from constructing multidimensional landscapes on a two-dimensional plane to blurring the lines between the natural and the man-made, Anna's collages tells more than one story and invite us to think beyond the surface. With a background in textile conservation and a lifelong interest in maps and collage, Anne brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to her work, and we're going to experience this during our conversation. We delve into her process, inspiration, and impact her work has on raising awareness about environmental issues. Let's dive in. Thank you, Anna, for being here. Totally appreciate it. Uh, let's just start by you telling us a bit about your background and how did you begin making art? <laughs> like my background, you want to say like where I was born and where I lived? and Yeah, what influenced you to become the artist that you are today? Well, I think one of the most significant things is I was raised in a home of very serious intellectuals. My father's a professor de espanol. <laughs> Sorry, no Portuguese. And, uh, and, and French. And my mother, um, my father taught in, in university. My mother taught Latin and Greek in, and French in high school. And, uh, the reason that's significant is because we didn't have television at all in our house when I grew up. I had to figure out what to do with myself. I mean, I read books, of course, but I need, you know, I had a lot of energy and obviously creative energy. So um, I think that's a really significant part of why I became an artist. And uh, when I was little, you know, my father's university was a very serious ballet and music school. So I took a lot of ballet and I played piano and I was convinced I was going to be a, a ballerina. But then when I was 11, we lived in Paris 
and I started going to all the museums and I was completely amazed and just fell in love in a serious way with a lot of the very early 20th century painters, the, you know, Picasso, Braque, Kandinsky, Sonia Delaunay, all those people. I think I was taken by their patterning and sort of more direct, simple work. I, I was, the old masters didn't mean anything to me. So I decided at that point when I was 11 that that's what I was going to do, that I wasn't going to be a ballerina. <laughs> And I presume that the discipline you gain from playing piano and being a bailarina also transferred to your passion for, for art and for your work as an artist. I think, and also, you know, I think about it now a lot, about how we're so influenced by the home environment. And I saw my father open up books and study. In fact, I remember he used to get books shipped from Spain and the pages weren't separated and he'd get a knife and have to cut open the pages. And, you know, and I'd see him write, sit down with notebooks and pens and pencils and take notes. And people were always, a, a home was a place to study. Yeah, influenced your practice. Yes. So can you describe to us how your current artistic vision was born? So currently I'm working on a long-term exhibition that I know You'll ask more questions about, but I, so I'll talk now more about my um, materials, not so much about the, the, the yeah. concept. So I work with, I, I make collages, it's art on paper. And I started out because when I was little, like elementary school age, maybe say like 10, 11, they started having sewing classes in the summer in my public school. It's through this program in this country called 4-H. It's to teach a lot of more domestic skills. And um, so I started going to those classes in the summer in the school and I learned how to sew. And my parents bought me a very simple sewing machine and I started making a lot of clothing. In fact, one of my favorite stories is when we were going live in Paris for the summer, I told the teacher I had to finish my dress quickly because I was going to wear it on the airplane. And the teacher didn't believe me. Where I was grew up, there weren't a lot of young children saying they're going to Paris for the summer. So she had to call my parents and ask if I was telling the truth. <laughs> But so anyway, I had a, I was very competent in textile skills. And in high school, I had excellent art teachers in public school. And one of them taught a uh, textile craft class. And we learned a lot of macrame and um, very simple weaving techniques like card weaving. And so I got really interested in this. And so I started looking for art schools. And I knew that I wanted to find a school where you could study textiles as fine art. This was in the mid 70s. And uh, I see a lot of people talking about these issues now, but they're not new. A lot of craft artists felt like they had to present their work and make it on the same level as fine art. And there was a lot of minimalism going on at that time. So I, I found art school in Philadelphia, Philadelphia College of Art. And I was very fortunate because my father's university had tuition re reciprocity. And so I they didn't pay for me to go to college. And so I did textiles all the time in art school. And it was all great and fine. And I loved it. And I had an amazing mentor who I learned a huge amount from about aesthetics. But my ideas were, my work got more and more conceptual and all my ideas and included a lot of imagery that was 
not easy to represent using textiles. So my last year of art school, I took a, we always took painting and drawing classes because it was, we were steeped in the Bauhaus tradition. So the idea is, you know, even if you're making crafts, you still need to know how to draw and paint, you know, things were more, are more integrated and not separated so much by discipline. It's more about your aesthetics. So to get back to the point of your question, in this abstract painting class, the teacher instructed us to get started to just tear up pieces of paper, like as color areas to get ideas for organizing paintings. And I started cutting up maps. And so I realized immediately that there was this amazing concept to work with imagery and have the idea of the form and the composition, but there's already information embedded in the materials that you're using to make that composition. So, like I said, I started working with maps, making very simple images, and the teachers asked me if I was ever going to paint, and I said no. But she realized that I had a very strong concept. So that's how it really got started. And I think back at that time, on if we had the technology to do digital printing, I may not have switched to working with paper. But also people who look at my work and understand that I come from a textile background, I think they really pick up on it because um, I use a lot of repeat imagery. Um, and another aspect of it is the craft of my work is extremely important. Like I had an exhibition last year in a gallery and all these people came to see my work in person and they weren't convinced that it wasn't um, made digitally because the collage work was so clean and pristine. And I was saying to all of them, that's because I come from a craft background where all of this is very important. It has to be well crafted before you can ask people to look at it. Yeah, that idea of the craft, I think I learned that too, because I did my my secondary school in arts and ceramics. So it it was Uh. very important to learn the technique. And it was always a battle when I went to to university because the craft was was not as important the concept was, but you can't apply or you can't make it happen if I don't have the craft necessary to do that. So it's always a discussion that you can't have the image, the final project, without having the craft, the ability to create behind it. Exactly, and and you know I always say we're makers as artists, and I get really. All of these like interactivity and experiential and all this. I'm like, I want to see something that somebody made with their hands. Yeah. I mean, you can have really modern concepts like I do, but to me, using the old world techniques is really important. And I think people now expect the artist to create so much work that it becomes a bit impossible to know the craft as much. Because the artist has to dedicate so much time just producing and producing and producing that he doesn't take the time to just sit and and work on how to do ceramics or how to do a painting, a realistic painting or textiles. They don't take the time to do that. They just want to apply their idea and their concept somehow Mm -hmm. and create more and more and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. That's why why I think it's it's shifted. Now, actually, the idea of the craft and the realism is, is surfacing again. So artists are more concerned with the technical parts of art. Yeah, I, I had this prediction when all this technology with the internet started being, you know, the all-consuming thing in everyone's lives. And I kept saying there has to be a revolution. You know, and it sort of happened like 
for example, you know, in COVID when everyone was making their own bread and things like that, you know, this return to the handmade, it sort of reminds me of when um, the arts and crafts movement came about as a result of the uh, Industrial Revolution in England. You know, so I was waiting for this huge movement of these artists to say, no internet, no, you know, experiential. Let's just get back to the, what we make with our own hands. <laughs> also, we had the amazing opportunity to partner with sound artist Annabelle Galea, who created the sounds that you hear during the conversation. You're gonna hear and listen to her work during this season. So go give her your love and support. I will leave the link in the description so you can find her. So you you say that you working in Israel and in the West as a textile conservator was kind of a right step or a step forward after college because much of the, your background is in textiles. It's interesting because it goes back further than art school when I, I was very close friends with the family and the director of the art museum in Indianapolis where I grew up. And I started working in the exhibition installation department. Like in a lot of museums, it's, it was called preparation department back then. And so I was, got familiar with the conservation labs because they'd always say, you know, go down to the conservation lab and bring up that African head they just finished. And, you know, and we, I was handling real artifacts. I was only in high school. So I had that background. And then when I got to art school in my um, textile de fiber department, we called it fibers, the head of the department had a study collection textile history and it was part of our curriculum to learn textile history and I love the idea of combining working with your hands but also learning about other cultures because so there's an intellectual component to it so that really satisfied me so then what happened was I um, emigrated to Israel and I started looking for work after I'd been living there for a time in the museum in Haifa where I was living and at first I just proposed that You know, I start slow by maybe, and simple, like maybe teaching a class after school. And when they heard about my qualifications, they said, oh, we have a very large ethnographic collection here in our museum that nobody has ever really taken care of seriously. And we want you to um, become a citizen so that the state can pay your salary and you can start working on caring for our collection. So that, that suited me perfectly. I mean, it couldn't have been a better situation. We won't talk about how little I got paid because the um, museum was supposed to pay half the salary and they didn't. The, only the government was paying. But um, I just looked at it as a very low-paid internship. So anyway, um, I, I started learning all about this ethnography of all the different ethnic groups that came to make the state of Israel people from all over the Mideast, from all the Soviet republics, from North Africa, you know, and then all the European collections that people might be more familiar with in um, the United States. And when I was doing con textile conservation, you spend a lot of your day like straightening threads to do the stitch techniques to strengthen the textile or a term that we use is compensation for loss where you're filling in missing areas. And so, like I said, there's a lot of your day, you're just like straightening really fine threads and it's very um, fine work. And when you come home at the end of the day and you want some sort of change 
from that, what you do all day, it just seemed like too much to have that same type of technique be my art practice. So that's another reason I think where the working with the paper more directly just superseded all of the techniques that I learned. Um, But I still used all the techniques that I knew because working in conservation in textiles, you have to know how things are made, how, how things are constructed. But also visually, I was very influenced by just looking at all these beautiful textiles and all the patterning. But another thing that was very strong influence on me is in ethnographic collections, things are not so planned out as far as like things are more um, mixed up as far as having like, say you have a really intricate embroidery on one side. So in, in the Western world, the backing or the lining, they might pick just a very plain color, but especially in the Mideast, they'll just take another pattern fabric. And so why I'm saying that is there's a lot of different patterns maybe in just one artifact that's, to me, it's a non-Western approach to design. And so I think that heavily influenced my collage work because a lot of my early work in collage was pretty dense and there was a lot of different patterning going on in the same piece. And the way I, an easy way to describe it is a lot in the West, people think that if they buy um, a rug from the Mideast, that it has to match their furniture. And that is such BS. It's like, if it's a good rug and it has a good design, put it in there, put it in with all your other crazy designs in one room. It, It doesn't have to coordinate like the way an interior, as I say, an interior desecrator would tell you that it needed to look. So those approaches to aesthetics, I feel, are uh, really influenced my work. Yeah. So early on on your career, you mentioned that you used so the collage work from image out of the internet, but then after some time and now you create your own images, your own scenarios, and then you do the collages, you construct these collages. Can you tell us about the process of doing this collage and doing your artworks? Right. So that's a good question. So um, in, in all of my grant proposal applications, for I've been working on this project now for over three years. It started in 2019, well before COVID. And I just made it a part of the process of, um, it's all this work about species. So it'd be super easy for me to just go to the computer and find a great picture of whatever species that particular collage was going to be about and just download it and start printing it out and keep working. But I told myself it was a more serious study and reflection. If I made the, I'm making, usually it's watercolor. And so I'm copying the illustrations off of historic illustrations. But so if there's a picture of say a bird in the collage, it's a bird that I made a painting of and if it's printed out it's a reproduction of something i made with my own hand and then i can manipulate it i can change the color i can change the scale i can change the angle i can play with it in that way can you tell us just how large your collages are the largest are uh well it's going to be in inches (laughs) 22 inches it's okay So the largest piece of paper I worked on is 22 inches by 30 inches. It's hot press watercolor paper of the highest um, weight that you can buy. 
So there are bigger watercolor papers, but they're not hot press and they may not be as heavy, but I like the hot press because I don't want the bumps in the watercolor showing through the collage. Yeah. So how long does it take you to finish, start and finish one of your artworks? My least favorite question. <laughs> um, it depends. <laughs> um, usually less than a month. And I know you're going to ask me a lot about my research process, but I spend a lot of time studying what I'm, what the next collage is going to be about. And so then when I sit down to work, there's a lot of sketches. There's a lot of information that has already been circulating in my brain. But um, I also don't know all the materials that I'm going to use when I sit down and start. It's not like a baking project or something where you have all your ingredients. And as the French, French love to say, mise en place. <laughs> like I like the discovery along the way. I think one of the big evolutions in my work is a long time ago when I was working more minimally, I would know everything what I was going to use and probably what all the colors were going to be. And now I feel like I'm working a bit more like a painter. I don't like all the decisions to be made okay. before I sit down. I like the discovery along the way. And the best part for me is mm -hmm. there's a lot of excitement in that way because you can surprise yourself. You can start out with an idea, yeah. but it can become more than the sum of the parts. It can take on a whole new way by sometimes, for example, I'll just, I have a lot of um, files of images um, organized by subject matter. And so sometimes I'll just happen to be looking at these image files and I'll find the most perfect thing that goes with what I'm working on. And I didn't even think about it or know or realize. Yeah. And that's what I love about the discovery where you haven't made all your decisions when you sit down to start and you, you leave yourself more open for things to come in. That's funny because there are two contrasting ideas. It's the methodic way you do research and you catalog your work. And then the artistic part, the more free relationship with the artwork and you let it flow according with what you th you're feeling at that time. I'm, I'm sure it came back from your childhood as a piano and being a violin and then textile conservator. And then now this approach is your artistic individuality, these two contrasting parts. But it's interesting you say that because one... I, I was aware when I sort of switched that approach where I didn't have everything predetermined because in textiles, like if you're weaving, you have to have everything set up ahead of time. You have to dye your warp, clean your warp, you have all the colors set, everything is decided. Or if it's a tapestry, you're working with a drawing that's informing the weaving. So it, it's a very different approach to the making. So can you tell us now a bit more about the research aspect of your practice? Yes. <laughs> a long time ago, <laughs> I started, I don't remember exactly. I can't say like, oh, it was one day, you know. <laughs> I started integrating scientific concepts into my art. And I this can circle back to the questions about my training as a textile conservator because I was out of art school for five years when I went back to school for textile conservation and we learned science, um, chemistry, a lot of like chemistry of detergency and solubility parameters and pH. And it was very 
applied chemistry for textile conservation. But I think that going through that training five years out of art school made me more comfortable delving into scientific concepts. So I'll give you an example. One of the early pieces that I worked on that was that's about, that's about the intersection of art and science is about Einstein's um, theory of relativity, <laughs> big concept. And I didn't have to study it that much, but I made some artwork that's about that. And, you know, a lot of the time I just hear something on the radio that would inspire me. And I think, oh, that's really interesting. I want to make a picture to show what that looks like. And the most interesting part for me in all of this, because I've been in a lot of meetings and symposiums and seminars and groups, whether it's online or in person, about the intersection of art and science. And I was at this serious symposium, like in 2018 in New York City, where scientists and artists came together for a whole weekend to talk about our processes and how they're different, how they're the same. And to get to my point, artists don't have to understand the science that they're using, that they're appropriating in their work. And I think that's one of the biggest misunderstandings altogether. We can work with ideas that we don't understand. And I used that as example once when this, I have a couple collages about Einstein's theory of relativity um, and then I have some about um, quantum entanglement, which also is Einstein's idea. And sometimes physicists would argue with me. And one time I mentioned that to someone and they said, don't worry, the scientists don't understand it. <laughs> so, so you do believe that knowing scientific data is important for artists, but not knowing it in terms that you have to comprehend it? Yeah, but I think the level that we have to understand it may not be the same. Because, like, for example, this collage, it's called um, Einstein's Thought Experiment in Central Park. So I heard on this, there's this radio program, Science Friday, on public radio here. It's very high-level science. I know scientists who listen to it religiously. And they were talking about this thought experiment where there was a race in Central Park where one person was walking and the other person had a jet pack and they were talking about like the relativity of their time and space. And so I made a collage that I tried to show like this different space as if it was moving through time and it was kind of set in like an arena, like it was a race. And I don't have to understand all the implications of the theory of relativity to make a picture that's trying to show movement through a space. So the information that we need and the the outcomes are quite different. So the, to me, the best way to explain it to me, the science is a jumping off point. It's what got me started thinking about what this collage is going to be about. And then it, I can take it wherever I want. It's just the starting point. Yeah. You actually did a work where you talked about technology and art, if I'm not mistaken. You mentioned in our last conversation that you thought that technology and science, in this case technology, uh, could help with a conservation effort. That's a good segue for me to kind of explain the concept of this exhibition that I mentioned um, that I've been working on for more than three years. I borrowed the title from the world of textile conservation, which is Compensation for Loss. So... I'll give you a brief intro and then I'll get back to answering the question. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. So I was working on this 
multi-part series about tulip mania. That's the tulip trading frenzy in the Netherlands in the 1630s. And it's very much age of exploration. And that segued into making this big, long series um, based on Cabinet of, of Curiosity. So at the time of exploration, these artifacts were being brought back on the boats and aristocratic gentlemen were um, procuring these artifacts and putting them in cabinets. And it was like supposed to be a symbol of how educated you are because you had a collection of bones that were collected by someone else somewhere else. And um, so, and that was the beginning of museums, um, all these natural history collections. So I was thinking, okay, we know what all these artifacts are now. It's not an idea of exploring new things, but we have to save the things that we have. So I started with, so each collage is example of one species and one thing that's causing its demise. So, for example, the collage that's actually called Compensation for Loss is a watercolor of a, a cracked turtle shell. And the idea is there's no more turtle shells left for conservators to patch the turtle shell. So they use um, ceramic tiles to repair the cracks in the turtle shell. And the, to make, take it even further, the ceramic tiles have images of turtles on them <laughs> so it's very much like an aspect. the man-made world has to mimic the natural world yeah and, and use those man-made pieces to patch together the natural so the technology part comes in in terms of like some of the collages have the genome of the species like, for example, there's a collage about the black-footed ferret, which is a species in the west of the United States. And there are already cloned ferrets running around the prairie in Colorado, where I was oh. born. And so in the collage about them, there's um, little ferrets that are made out of their the code of their DNA in the collage. Um, and then in that same collage, um, ferrets all have a virus. It's not Corona. It's something that's been around a lot longer. And they're using drones to inject like the, the um, antibiotics into the, where the yeah. ferrets live. So in the collage, there's drones. So that's an example, but you have, I have to like study the species to learn what's causing it for them to be fewer and fewer. And then what are the remedies? So in each collage, I mean, yeah. It's not a hundred percent, but in a lot of the collages, there's, I learned about what's wrong with it, what's causing the problems and how people are trying to fix it. Why is it so important for you to, to talk about this, talk about how species are in decline and to understand why they are in decline and what is being done to stop it? Well, it really, I mean, there's a lot of obvious reasons that, you know, a lot of people could say the same things, but it really came about directly from working on this project about tulip mania. And in the bottom of one of the collages, I was just sort of making my own version of an illustration of what the tulip garden looked like in Leiden in the 1630s. And there was like this freeze, this area at the bottom of the illustration where there were like different animals. And I started making my own version where I was just cutting up different animal parts and making up things that didn't exist. 
And so that took me directly to the cabinet of curiosity, because in the cabinets of curiosity, oftentimes these sailors would make up things that weren't real. You know, they'd have little bones and they, you know, sew a wing on it because they had a lot of time to do these handcrafts on the boat and they would sell them to these aristocrats and they would put them in their collection. So that's really how it all got started because I started thinking about these um, collections. So it didn't come about, I didn't sit down and say, for the next four years, I have to work on a, it's about species collapse. It, it, it came from a very different space, but it's been really satisfying for me to work on this, especially because I've done a huge amount of reading. I've read a lot about biodiversity. I've read it, a lot of this brings in, brings you into the whole discipline of um, the history of science, which is fascinating. Yeah. And this is something I always say also in my um, funding proposals, that the science we have right now that we're so proud of, like that we can sequence a genome, in 100 years, they're going to look back at us and laugh at how unsophisticated and primitive <laughs> all of this was. So I like to think about things in very anachronistic ways. And this lends itself very, very well to that. Also, if you are an artist and want to be featured on the magazine, go to the page, submit your work on our website and see the required steps. We hope to see your work. So you told him that you're going to have actually an exhibition about this work, so the Compensation for Loss in Baltimore. Can you just explain a bit about the exhibition itself? More? Right. So, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating because... The exhibition is going to be in the Peel Museum. And the Peels were um, around in the time of our revolution in the late 18th century. And they were, they're really famous mostly for being like portrait painters of Washington and things like that. Um, and there was a father, Charles Wilson Peel, and he named all his sons after artists. So his kids are like Titian, Rembrandt, Raphael, which is really kind of cute. And they built the first museum in the New World in Baltimore. It was finished in around 1811. And to clarify, it was the first structure built to be a museum, a purpose-built museum. And they had all these natural history collections. So it's the perfect place for my exhibition. And some of the collages in the exhibition that I made are directly related to the artifacts that the Peels exhibited when they had their place. And um, the most interesting fact to me is they actually excavated a mastodon in 1801 in, in upstate New York, like an hour or so north of New York City in 1801. And all these people in the old world told Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, that we had no megafauna in the New World. Really funny. We did. When you think about how much space we have and all the bison and the elk and all these like big animals out west. Um, so Jefferson had to prove that we had big animals in the United States. So they pulled up this mastodon and they had it in the museum. Um, and Their situation isn't the only one like this, but they didn't even know how to put it together. And they didn't know what to do with the horns and they had it going the wrong way and they had to take it apart. And 
put it back together. And another fascinating effect is um, Titian Peel, one of the sons, was the most serious naturalist. He really was known as a naturalist and he did beautiful um, uh, illustrations. Um, but the very famous American illustrator of birds, John J. Audubon, he had a fake specimen in one of his portfolios of print. He made up this California condor and he, he faked it just to enhance his portfolio to sell in England and France. And Titian Peel, as we say in, in, Nor in modern English, he outed Audubon. It's really funny. <laughs> So I have a, uh, that's one of the collages in my um, series about the condor. But then I bring it up to modern day times because this same species, there were only like seven of them altogether in, in California um, recently. And they found an um, example of parthenogenesis in the condors, which scientists had never seen before in bird populations. It's something that happens in reptile populations when there when there's a lot of stress on the entire population. And what it means, parthenogenesis, it means that there's offspring that were born that have no male contribution. So it's only the oh, female okay. that's making the fertilizing the egg and, and bringing yeah, the yeah. next generation. So they found examples of it in this um, condor population. And so I got like a um, printout of the um, parts of the genome of the condor and I put that into the collage. But it, it, it's in a subtle way. It's just in the tail feathers. So what happens is often in these compositions, they're about more than one thing at the same time. But also, yeah. I was thinking about this when I was looking over all your questions. The beauty of working on a long series is it's easier to simplify each composition because it doesn't have to be so all-encompassing. It doesn't have to be about yeah. so many different things. Like I'm not trying to illustrate all the issues of climate change and, and species collapse in one composition. So it's easier to simplify and make each thing only about this one issue. And it seems that you have a lot of hidden stories within the work. Exactly, right. Right. So can you tell us how did you got this exhibition? Did you approach the museum? That's a good question. What happened was um, I had worked at the art, I'm here in Baltimore and I had worked at the art school for a long time and um, just as staff, I wasn't um, teaching art. But because of my background in conservation, I approached the director of curatorials and museum studies and told him that I could teach an introductory class in conservation. And so I started doing that. And so that lasted a while. And I've remained on very good terms with this great curator. You know, he's very well known in the art world in Baltimore. And um, when I told him about what I was working on, he's, you know, I wanted to have it at first in a museum in, Bal in Baltimore called the Walters, where they actually have a whole room that is a cabinet of curiosities. And it, it it's very much age of exploration. It's a great example of what these things were all about. And so I thought this is the place for me to have this show. And it's very, very difficult for a modern artist to um, have an exhibition there. And around the time that I was trying to approach this museum, the Renaissance curator was out on the long-term leave and she wasn't even supposed to be messaging people about work. 
And so it just got too difficult. And so my friend, the, my mentor from the curatorial program suggested the peel. And he probably knew more about it at that point than I did. And it turned out to be the perfect venue because very much an experimental exhibition space. And they also, interestingly, had long-term plans to renovate their entire building. And it just happened to coincide with COVID. So they had the plan from 2019 when I got involved with them. They knew they were going to close. They didn't know it was going to be COVID. So um, I approached them in, in, like in the summer of 2019 to say, you know, this is my project and it relates to the very beginnings of why your building is here. And they saw all the potential. And so that's how it, it was born. Thanks for listening to the show. This was a wonderful conversation. I hope you got as much as I did from it. So we are at Instagram, at Inside of an Echo Artist. Go have a look. You can reach me directly if you want. Send me a message. I'm totally open to that. You can also make a sustainable donation to the show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash of an Echo Artist. We have different tiers from you to choose from. Also, a good way to support us is by reviewing the show. So thank you. <laughs>